Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, the March for Life marks 50 years in defense of human dignity. We'll talk with Jeannie Mancini, president of the organization. We've become the largest human rights demonstration worldwide. And Jim Daly of Focus on the Family. This is the battle. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's very active right now in the wombs of moms around the nation. We'll look at the battle over the curricula in our schools. We've gotten to a place in our culture, especially on the left, where only certain opinions are allowed. Including what really ought to be addressed at home. What sex education is, is nothing more than a codification of the sexual revolution. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's T.C. Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin right here in Washington, D.C., where the March for Life marks 50 years in their defense of human life. Since 1973 in the Roe decision, they have faithfully sought to be a voice for those who have no voice. I wouldn't be surprised if you see little coverage of this year's march. But that says more about elite media than the event itself. It is the largest annual human rights demonstration in the world. I turn to Jeannie Mancini, president of March for Life, in the run-up to this weekend's march. We've probably talked about this in the past, but you're aware, certainly more than most perhaps, that there were those who thought, well, now that COVID has decimated the population in terms of being able to move about and be mobile, we probably won't see the march anymore. But what are you getting for reaction even this year as folks realize that's pretty much behind us and uh, we now can, we're fairly mobile now, what are, what are you expecting this year? Well, we expect big crowds here. Um, I think that there was some confusion after Roe was overturned as to mm. what that meant and if there was still a need to march. And frankly, on that, it's true that the march did begin after Roe. But over the last 50 years, we've become the largest human rights demonstration worldwide. And with Roe being overturned, Unfortunately, the human rights abuse of abortion doesn't just automatically go away in the United States. We're still expecting well over 700,000 abortions, which is so sad this year in our country. And so um, we will continue to march until abortion is unthinkable in the United States. Jeannie, just to elaborate a little more that the battle is far from over. In fact, it's now gone down to the state and local level in some ways we never thought it would (laughs) And uh, so as a result, the war is still very much on, isn't it? How do we combat that? Yes, the war is very much still on. So uh, sadly, we're still expecting well over 700,000 abortions this year in our country. And what we're seeing is I think the latest count is something like 21 states have enacted really life protective laws, which is incredible. But a lot of those states already have those laws tied up in the courts. So they're, you know, they're being sued for those laws. So we'll see um, how that how that shakes down in the long run. So those could be like heartbeat laws or um, in the case of Florida, they would protect life later uh, in gestational development, 15 weeks, et cetera. 
So 28 states have very wide open abortion laws, and some of them are even, gosh, considered abortion, quote unquote, sanctuaries like the Californias, the Michigans of the country. So with all of that said and done, as I mentioned, we still expect, you know, well over 700,000 abortions this this year. Um, We also are seeing at the federal level really drastic steps, like scary, draconian steps, I would say, regarding chemical abortion in particular. And so just last week, the Biden administration, the FDA, took away some of the regulatory oversight for chemical abortion, which is, by the way, much harder on women than surgical abortion. And so it it very, I mean, like science and studies have shown that women very much more often end up in the emergency room with complications of chemical abortion over surgical abortion. It's something like four times more often. Um, And there are issues often with hemorrhaging and what have you, not to mention the psychological consequences of of that. They they see the baby pass. There's a, they become the abortionists. So there's a lot there. And I feel like even just saying these things out loud, I, I need to just also say, if any of your listeners have been involved in abortion and have some regret or sadness or darkness over that, there's always hope and healing. There's always mercy. There's always hope and healing. And you can contact our office if you're looking for any information on those kinds of programs. Um, but we basically, our work is cut out for us. So we're not yet done. We continue to march because we haven't built a culture of life in the United States. And because, as you mentioned, Don, there's, frankly, I mean, we, perhaps the work is even harder at this stage, at least for a short while. I mean, sometimes after you have a major victory, like an earthquake, like the Dobbs decision and Roe being overturned, there are some cultural reverberations. And I think that's what we're going through right now in terms of the confusion over abortion. And I think we'll we'll, um, sort of, um, the pendulum will swing back and, and so I think it is a wonderful, wonderful victory. But my gosh, we have our work cut out for us. Yes. As this fight for human life continues, the front line of the battle are the pregnancy resource centers across the country. I'm sure you've seen it. They've been targeted. They've been vandalized. But they are determined to offer women help and hope, including a hopeful future for the little lives they carry in their womb. Jim Daly, president of Focus on the Family, joined me to talk about their efforts to help. Talk about what Focus on the Family has been doing for decades with families in general and unborn babies in particular, and especially uh, what you're now focused on more than ever. Well, you know, the the uh, ultrasound machines, we've been at that for 18 years now, placing ultrasound machines with the help of the donors of Focus on the Family into pregnancy resource centers. And, uh, you know, these clinics get battered by Planned Parenthood. They're constantly in lawsuits. And it, it's actually quite farcical what Planned Parenthood does to keep the competition down, so to speak. And these clinics do such a wonderful job explaining to women what their options are and talking them hopefully into the idea that life is a better choice. And if they can't financially or for any other reason uh, keep the child, they can uh, put that child up for adoption, in many cases open adoption, so they can stay in contact with that child long term. It is such a better solution than simply killing a child. Let's face it. And, you know, unfortunately, the media, Don, we've uh, allowed them to kind of allow Planned Parenthood to say that they're pro-choice. You go to those clinics. I've talked to many women 
They don't talk about choice. They talk about abortion. Why? Because they get $700 for that abortion. And so when we talk about them being pro-choice, that's not really it. They talk about one choice, and that's terminating the life of a child. So I, I am happy to celebrate life with the pregnancy resource centers around the country who actually counsel women to consider other options rather than abortion, ending the life of their baby and allowing that baby to live either with them or maybe in an adoption situation. Talk about how we ought to really celebrate the defeat of Roe v. Wade, but be aware of what's happening now at the state and local levels. Well, right. The Supreme Court decision just made the declaration that there is no constitutional right to end the life of your child, basically, that it's not there. They can't reconstruct it to make it happen. And so they overturned that ruling. Many, many, uh, you know, watchers of the court agreed with that, that back in 1973, the court made that out of thin air. And so they threw it back to the states. And you know what what we often forget is the framers of the Constitution, they wanted a roiling debate about core cultural issues. They didn't want the court to come in and make some kind of, you know, winsome uh, offhanded decision that didn't go through the process of the legislative branch. They want the legislative branch to battle this out, to put pressure on one another, to come up with some kind of a solution or no solution at all. So I, I think, again, great evidence that our wonderful Constitution is actually working when the judicial branch says, you know what, that's not our job to create law. That's the legislative branch, and we're sending it all back to each state to determine what they want to do. And so that battle has, to your point, has opened up in all 50 states now. So what do we do to move forward? You know, folks on the family, along with Susan B. Anthony List and others, we're trying to Uh, work together and find ways to create a hero out of those pregnancy resource centers where women can come and get a full suite of services that include job training, job placement, uh, of course, the essentials of cribs and formula and other things that young moms need. But the bigger point is it's a holistic approach, and we've got to get engaged. I hope all the churches, the pastors are listening man, adopt a pregnancy resource center near you, become part of the team, and uh, allow people to and encourage people to go volunteer there. This is the battle. There's no doubt about it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's very active right now in the wombs of moms around the nation. You and I have talked about it before, and it merits going back to it in detail. If you can, Operation Ultrasound Program, that is such a turning point, such a decisive tool that makes all the difference for many of these unwed mothers who are on the fence or even maybe come just out of uh, wanting an opinion before they go get an abortion. Talk about your program in that regard. Yeah. So we, for the last 18 years, have been placing those ultrasound machines in the clinics. And the data is most consistently around 60% of abortion-minded women will choose life for their baby after getting counseling and seeing an ultrasound So often a woman goes to a Planned Parenthood and they hide the screen, turn the screen, don't allow them to see the baby that's clearly in there, especially in second, third trimester views of the womb. So we are proudly placing equipment and training and trying to uh, encourage doctors to place their licenses with these clinics. And that entire effort has uh, resulted in almost 500,000 babies being saved over the last 18 years. And I'm excited about the next iteration of this, of what 
what do we do to roll up our sleeves, get engaged, get involved? And we're doing something now called My Choice Network. It's a voluntary opt-in for these uh, pregnancy resource centers. And we're going head-to-head with Planned Parenthood on social media. So when a woman uh, types in unwanted pregnancy, abortion near me, Planned Parenthood pops up. They spend about $50 million a year buying that, from what I understand. Buying those word searches, we're spending about two to three million, but we're trying to get in that second position and say there are other options. That effort in just under two years has resulted in over 160,000 appointments at these pregnancy resource centers. So I'm excited about that. And then, in addition to that, Don, we're really pushing ahead to uh, again come alongside these pregnancy resource centers. We have about 10 states identified to really bolster them and bulk them up so they can be all they can be and need to be for these women that are coming for help. And I'm looking forward to that next iteration of being the hands and feet of the Lord in community and really encouraging people to support, volunteer, and be a part of the pregnancy resource centers in their neighborhood. Coming up, the battle over our kids and the increasingly controversial curricula in our schools. We've gotten to a place in our culture, especially on the left, where only certain opinions are allowed. When our Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Carol Markowitz, a columnist for the New York Post, is one of the many who emigrated to Florida in 2022. Florida remains the nation's fastest growing state. And yet, the issue of public education remains a hotly contested issue, yes, even in Florida. And I should note, wherever you're at in the nation, if you have your kids or your grandkids in public school, You should not be assuming that everything is fine. Carol was a guest of Kevin McCullough on AM570, The Mission, in New York City. Carol, you've written about something very interesting. The title of the article is, Why Does So Much of Gen Z Hate America? Mm -hmm. And then you say, We Can't Give Up on Them. First of all, is your premise true? Does much of Gen Z hate America? Well, they certainly tell pollsters that they hate America, which might not be the same thing, because we've gotten to a place in our culture, especially on the left, where only certain opinions are allowed. And cancel culture is very real, but there's also just the idea that if you say the wrong thing, if you say, no, I'm really proud to be American, and you get a deluge of comments and uh, abuse online or maybe even in person, and you back down from that opinion when you're a young person who hasn't learned to stand up for themselves. So 16% of Gen Zers are proud to live in the United States. And that number to me, Kevin, is a travesty. But more than that, it's, it's not an accident. It has been a deliberate effort by the woke left in America to disparage our country at every turn and to make sure that it's part of our school curriculum and to show that we are just not that great. And to me, that's the most privileged position in the whole world. It means you don't know anything about the world, about history, about <laughs> other countries, nothing. So th- these privileged, privileged people having these opinions, it's, it's by design, and it's been forced onto them. Well, I, I completely agree with that. Um, what's the solution, though? 
Because these people are going to grow up and make decisions and begin running society before long. Right. Well, so the solution is, for one thing, to fight every day, all the time for the curriculum in our schools. You know, Republicans or conservatives are are very into the idea of school choice, as am I, obviously. Uh, School choice would be amazing on every level. But until we get to school choice, there's absolutely no reason for us not to affect what's going on in our public schools. And I tried to do that a lot when we lived in New York. My kids all went to public schools. I, I, I cared very deeply about what was happening inside those schools, and I didn't want to give up on them just and just say, oh, I can pull them out and send them to private school. I could, but I didn't want to leave behind the kids that are, are in public school and don't have that option. Yeah. So I think it needs to be a two-pronged thing. Yes, school choice is very important. Yes, we should be fighting every day for the kids to have the money follow the kids. You know, as, as Corey DeAngelis, one of the top uh, activists for school choice, likes to say, you know, fund students, not, not systems. Yes. Absolutely. But in the meantime, fight for that curriculum. Fight for what is taught in your schools. Fight every time you hear a teacher you know disparage america or or give some kind of lesson plan which is clearly based in marxism or in leftism fight fight go to your school board run for school board etc i think i think a, a sustained fight for our schools is necessary if we are to be candid here in our discussion on education the particularly controversial curricula that we're seeing are sex ed scott phelps is the executive director of the a&m partnership That is, the Abstinence and Marriage Partnership. He was a guest of Bill Bunkley, my colleague on Faith Talk in Tampa. This all really started snowballing for us in the 60s with the Witzkock generation, and it seems like the caretakers of the church really hasn't had an answer, and even in our church families, we see so much sexual immorality. Talk about that. Well, you're exactly right. What sex education is, is nothing more than a codification of the sexual revolution, which told kids, you don't have to be married, you just use contraception. Well, that's what our schools are teaching now. What our sex education programs in schools across America teach is, there's nothing about marriage, and it's all about all the different types of contraceptive methods that you can use in order to have sex, to be sexually active. And so we would say that all sex education is harmful and uh, should not be taught to our kids. Now, what you're talking about now is beyond the pale. You know, we all sort of fell asleep during COVID for two years, and we woke up to a whole new world where sex education has gone far beyond just distributing contraceptives and encouraging sexual activity to a very confusing array of gender identity and sexual orientation to where kids today are extremely confused. And you're absolutely right. The church needs to be in front of this communicating clearly to our kids the safest, healthiest context for sexual activities within the context of a marriage relationship, and that needs to be clearly communicated to our kids. You know, if parents do not have a firm commitment to abstinence, and if maybe there is history in their lives or maybe they watch a lot of TV today and they're not uh, convicted about this, What hope do you have that their children are going to have any conviction? Because it's kind of that subject that maybe never gets talked about other than you just shouldn't have sex. Well, you're you're absolutely right that it comes back to the parents. And the parents have a great responsibility here. And that is the charge that was given to the parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the giving of the law, again, to the new generation going into the land. And what Moses is saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to the people is, You're about to cross over the river into Paganville, 
And you parents need to instill truth into the hearts of your kids, because if you don't, you're going to lose them. And you're absolutely right. That's what's happening today. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is Judges 2.10, where after Joshua and his generation are gone, it says there arose a new generation that did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for Israel. And so we absolutely, as parents, have to be teaching these things to our kids. Listen, we can't assume that our kids know that sexual activity is to be reserved for the context of a marriage relationship, because they're living in a pagan culture that is feeding their brain constantly with messages to the contrary. And in terms of if you as a parent didn't live out that biblical principle, that doesn't mean that you don't say the biblical principle to your kid. What you do is you speak biblical truth honestly and clearly despite your own personal failings in that area. And so the worst thing that you could do as a parent is to see your mistakes repeated in the lives of your children. So learn from your own mistakes, if that's the case, and help your children avoid the mistakes that you made. Don't shirk that responsibility. Step into that responsibility because it's not you speaking. It's the Lord speaking, and he's speaking to your kids through you. That's the exhortation of Moses in Deuteronomy 6. What are the current statistics? I know they're awful for teen sexual activity, as well as teenagers getting pregnant? Yeah, actually, uh, your sense is consistent with what most people's sense is, and that it's awful, but the reality is all of the metrics are moving in the right direction and have been rather dramatically for years. For example, teen pregnancies, births, abortions, are all at all-time recorded lows. They've been on a steady decline for the past three decades. If you look at all the data, all three of those metrics I just mentioned, teen pregnancies, teen births, teen uh, abortions, have all been in steady decline without interruption for about three decades, falling by over 50% in all three metrics. Teen sexual activity is also on the decrease. And so this isn't something that people are aware of. Most teenagers are not sexually active. The image and the message and the media spin is, hey, look, all the cool kids are having sex. And that's an image. That's not a reality. Most high school students have never had any sexual contact of any kind, and most are not currently sexually active. Coming up, the greatest problem in America is not political. It is spiritual. Bob Bernie, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com in five minutes. You will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. I think most of you have a pretty good sense of many of the broad changes we're seeing in our nation. On a past program, we talked about the rise of the nuns, that is, people who would respond to any survey on religious identification as none of the above. But there is something similarly disturbing going on as well. 
I'm referring to what I'll call the erosion of faith of individuals while they are within our churches. Here's my friend Bob Bernie from WRFD The Word in Columbus. I hope that my listeners understand politics, important. We need to discuss politics, politicians, the government, elections. We need to discuss all of that. But I hope you also understand that the greatest problem in America is not political. It is spiritual. I think we need to be active in politics. We need to be activists in one sense or another. But there is nothing that rises to the importance of what's happening spiritually in America, and that does not occur in Washington, D.C. It happens in pulpits and pews. Well, there aren't many pews anymore. Chairs of our churches. Not only are we seeing unbelievable political corruption, far more important is the incredible biblical illiteracy. Now, I I hope this is not offensive, but it's true. I don't expect people in liberal, mainline, Protestant denominations to know anything about the Bible. I don't expect them, because they're not being taught. They're not being taught doctrine. They're being taught social justice. They are being taught things that have no eternal value whatsoever. I started to say, so I don't fault the members of those churches. Actually, I do, because they should get out. They should know better than to sit under the teaching of someone who denies the authority of Scripture, holds up the Bible, and twists it and turns it and perverts it like that Democratic congresswoman from Michigan who said, I am a pro-choice Christian. I'm not going to go back over that. I've already dealt with that. So my greatest problem is the biblical illiteracy among people who claim to be Bible believers and people who claim to be evangelicals and churches that claim to be evangelical and only give their congregations milk, pablum, never get into the meat of the word because they're afraid somebody will be offended, and they can't leave the entertainment mode, and they think that if they really teach solid biblical doctrine— People won't come anymore, and they won't have the nickels and noses that they believe that they need. That concerns me more than anything else in America today, the biblical illiteracy among those who claim to be evangelicals. And I have proof. Every two years, Legionnaire Ministries, that's the group started by the late R.C. Sproul, in conjunction with LifeWay Research, does a State of Theology poll. Well, the State of Theology 2022 was released not long ago. And it's not good. 
Quote, the State of Theology 2022 looked at the beliefs of all Americans and compared those beliefs to those of qualified evangelicals. Get this. In 2022, 38% of evangelicals believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Not only is that heresy, that's blasphemy. To deny the deity of Christ is heresy, but it's blasphemy. So get this. And these are people that this poll are qualified evangelicals. I'm not quite sure how they qualified people, and I don't believe it's just self-proclamation. But these are people who are, quote, qualified evangelicals. 38% believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Coming up, setting our minds on Christ. I have to want a relationship with Christ, uh, a, a non-ceasing prayer life with God. Stephen Arterburn of New Life Ministries. When the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Growth in grace, growth in sanctification, or in the language of Paul in Romans, being conformed into the image of his Son is, if you are in Christ, what God wants to do with you, with me, with each one he has called his own. But sometimes it's easier said than done. Stephen Arterburn, our friend at New Life Live, is out with a new resource aimed at precisely this. The title, Every Believer's Thought Life, Defeating Destructive Mental Patterns to Gain Victory Over Temptation. Arterburn was a guest on my program. What would you say is the core message of the book, and uh, what led you to do this now? Well, when we were talking about um, our next book, it just we wanted to do something that would have the biggest impact, and it just seemed like this was it. And the core message is that your thought life leads to your attitudes, emotions, your actions. And so rather than change what are some symptoms of a crummy thought life, how about let's change the thought life. Let's go to the core of it. So we have some deeper strategies that go uh, deep into how to resolve some issues. And then we have some very practical things that you can do. For instance, today, this morning, I started with, in the book we describe, a God thought. So my foundation was, was, was this little thought pattern. God, not me. Okay, so I'm going to put God first, not me first. And then God with me. I'm going to acknowledge that God's with me, wants me to pray without ceasing with him. And then uh, others over me. So those, those, that was the foundation of my day, and I've kind of said that to myself over and over again. 
And so when we're doing things like that to start the day, we have a much better chance of the day going well and having less thought pollution. But when, in, the, um, in the book, page 65, there's the quote from this wonderful, wonderful old minister, uh, Chalmers. And uh, the, title, the title of his message, it was, uh, you know, they had better titles back then than this old theologian, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That was the title of his sermon that became so famous. And so what he's saying is the, the power to get rid of something has everything to do with having a new affection. So you don't just try to stop the old, mm. but you have to love something better than that old thought life. And um, so uh, John Piper came along and, and wrote about that as calling it this superior or stronger attraction. So, yeah, I can stay down here and I can try to fight with uh, my thought life, try to suppress it and all that. But taking it captive means I need to get it over and I need to replace it with something that I want more. And I have to want a relationship with Christ, uh, a a non-ceasing prayer life with God more than I want whatever path that my uh, thought life goes down. And that's different for a lot of people. Some it's worry. You just, you wake up, you start to worry. Well, you, you can help that by going to this God thought. That's, that's the surface kind of practical approach. But then also we talk about let's go deep and find out why there is so much worry and, uh, and anxiety in your life. On that note of worry, I saw a quote recently, Steve, maybe you've seen it. Someone said, worry is simply rehearsing the very things you don't want to happen. <laughs> well, and also um, things that most likely are not going to happen. Yeah. And and here's something that you cannot uh, refute, and that is whatever you're worried about, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, here's how I know that. Because the stuff you were worrying about 10 years ago, you got through it, you made it, and it's now okay. And And so if we can let God take care of some of the uncertainty, and we – okay, so let's say a person um, – worries. And there's, oh man, how am I going to pay that income tax thing? And Okay. You can take the constant worry and turn it into prayer without ceasing. Rather than say that to yourself, say it to God, turn it into a prayer. Lord, you know, I'm worried about that income tax thing. God, would you help me have peace? Would you help me do what I can and help me not get in this mess again? Now that's a better thing to be doing than just ruminating over that IRS tax bill. Now, obviously, you and uh, your ministry has done an immense amount of work through the years with the Everyman series and so forth, and that probably is one of the biggest areas of uh, need for mental and uh, spiritual uh, cleansing and uh, domination of our thought lives, uh, sexual temptations. But it sounds like this book goes uh, includes that, but goes well beyond it. Oh, it does. And, you know, when the Bible says to think on things that are pure and things that are noble, if we take the time and write down, what are some things I believe that are true? What are some things that are respectful or people that are noble? 
uh, what are some things that are lovely that I just I find delight in? Uh, you know, write these things down, uh, the things that we are told that this would be really good for you if you would uh, focus on these things. And it comes from Philippians 4, 8, but pair that with 1 Thessalonians 5.22 that says reject every kind of evil. And when you reject it, you have to love something better. And so you go to Philippians 4.8 and you start, you may need to have a little notebook and have a diary or a journal of things you find true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Fill your thoughts with those, and that's going to help you. But we also talk about, you know, Jeremiah 6.14 says, they treat the mortal wounds of my people with superficial mm. treatment. Mm. And we don't ever want to be superficial. So sometimes you have to stop long enough to say, wow, where does all this worry come from? Or where does all of this desire to never stop working and, and do more and do more? And, and then find a way to get to the heart of that with a pastor, a counselor, a coach, therapist. Do what you need to do rather than just keep moving forward and this thing that might have happened to you or you might have done, this thing just keeps a presence that drags you down every day. Coming up. Heavenly wisdom needs to be the source of everything that we do. More on conformity into Christ's image with Stephen Arterburn when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. I am well aware that the sort of things we've been talking about with Stephen Arterburn are really nothing new. We're dealing with an age-old problem. In fact, it really goes back all the way to the fall. Let's return for a few more minutes with Stephen Arterburn talking about every believer's thought life. Steve, uh, some folks may say, well, I just am so weak-willed. What role does willpower really play in the control of our thought life? And what do you say to those folks who say, well, I'm just not a very strong-minded person when it comes to really Mm -hmm. disciplining my mind? Well, you know, willpower is a good thing. Um, We all have certain strengths and powers. It's just not complete. And when you have a problem, willpower and trying harder is just going to make trying harder. So rather than try to will your way into a different way of thinking and being, we need to surrender. And that surrender says, I am humbly willing to do what I need to do. And many times the person plagued with a thought life that's impure has a hard time connecting with other people. So maybe the thing missing from correcting my thought life is a healthy connection with another human being. I need to join a group. And maybe I'm afraid of groups. I need to do it afraid. I need to do the thing that's uncomfortable and try to uncover and deal with the source. When you combine some of these practical things that we put here with going deeper into things that may be deeply troubling us, uh, you can have such a different way of being and, and delight in your day versus another day of defeat, distraction, and then you end up feeling shame that's, that's really getting tougher all the time. 
You also expressed apprehension over the phrase, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. What do you mean by that? Well, we all have what I would call fatal excuses. Ah. Uh, The fatal excuse keeps you from living out the dream. And some people will just write off something like, well, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and this is just the way I am, and and this is uh, my struggle. Well, you're kind of taking God's grace for granted, and you're using God as an excuse not to grow and prosper and become the man or the woman that God has intended you to do. So it's just one of those phrases that some people will throw out there, and they'll use it as an excuse not to grow. No excuses. We all need to grow. Why do you say that heavenly wisdom heavenly wisdom is really greater than our willpower? You offer five ways to improve our thought life. Can you take us there? Yeah. You know, heavenly wisdom needs to be the source of everything that we do. And so many people are still looking at God as a parent. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed our program. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, and never miss these and other great conversations. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushon and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She is She ran away in her sleep.